0: Welcome to Heat Treat Radio. Heat Treat today is honored to bring you today's episode recognizing M.G. Timothy Joseph Wright's long career in the US Army. TJ served our nation in the midst of Vietnam and Desert Storm, as well as through peace efforts in Europe. In sharing his background in heat treatment and the military, M.G. Wright describes a life of family, strategy and leadership. Our sponsor, C3Data, was founded by Nathan and Matt Wright, two of M.G. Wright's sons. More on them later in today's show. Let's start off by just sharing a little bit about some bio information about yourself. So, could you introduce yourself, who you are, maybe where you grew up?
1: Yeah. Uh, my name is uh, Timothy Joseph Wright. I spent my younger years up until the eighth grade in Phoenix, Arizona with my family, of which I have Uh, three brothers. Moved back to uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, midterm in the eighth grade year. Um, Went to New Haven High School, Um, worked in a garage for my grandfather eighth grade and through my sophomore year. And then after that my dad, the reason we moved back to Fort Wayne was he was running a heat treat for a, a. it's called National Heat Treat. It doesn't exist anymore, but for those folks. So I got a job running tool steel on second shift. There was a metallurgist there. His name was Carl Bobe, and he taught me how to mit- mount samples and read microstructures. And I learned how to run furnaces. And uh, In those days, we took dew points with a little dry ice cup and a thing and a, thermo- a thermometer on it. just to give you some concept of how the technology's changed over the last 50 years, it's pretty amazing that I was, that caused me or afforded me the ability to get a job after high school as a metallurgical technician working for International Harvester. And about my midway through my second year working there, I got my notice to come down and take a physical. go to in here to Indianapolis and when I got to the end I asked the sergeant I said what does that mean he said well you'll probably be back here in 60 to 90 days you'll probably be drafted because the Vietnam War was heating up and so my talked to my dad he was a World War II vet as was my grandfather and my uncle and he said he if it was me he would enlist and get choice not chance so I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I was sitting at home feeling sorry for myself. And the helicopter goes flying across the TV screen and the Army's looking for helicopter pilots. And I said, if I'm going, that's what I'm going to do. So I enlisted in, uh, in the Army, took all the physicals, took the tests, made the qualification. So that's how my career started.
0: When you're making that decision, it sounds like your family was a big support. Um, for you as you're making that transition to enlist.
1: Yeah, you know, family is everything. And it's not just, and after you're in the service, you learn to recognize that it's not just your family, but it's your compatriots and your fellow soldiers and airmen's families, too. You care about what, because it it impacts everybody when something happens that's good or bad. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Now, after you enlisted, um, it's, there. What year was that when you enlisted?
1: 1966, I believe.
0: Yeah. And was that before, it sounds like before you went to get your college education? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So then how did that come about? Was it through the army that you decided to? So
1: I enlisted in the army, went to Vietnam, uh, came back from Vietnam, I was an instructor pilot then at at Fort Walters, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I taught young, I called them young because I was all of 22 or so, 23 maybe. Mm -hmm. And people that didn't even hardly, we didn't wear seat belts in those days to give you some idea how to strap in the helicopter, how to wear the helmet, Mm -hmm. uh, how to talk on the radio, how to hover. Yeah, just make helicopter pilots out of them. Wow. And then at the end, when my time was up, by enlistment, four years we were up, I, uh, they wanted me to stay in the Army and, and offered me a direct commission. And I, I said, I don't, don't think I want to go back to Vietnam again, thanks. So I got off active duty. Uh, Lindsay and I, in the meantime, while uh, I was in the Army, Lindsay and I got married. And we were in Texas. And I knew I wanted to, to be a pilot. So Purdue has a great aviation professional pilot program, and I applied to go to that, mm-hmm. and I was accepted. And so we spent the next three years uh, at Purdue, mm-hmm. and then I I was uh, joined the National Guard at the, at that time, okay. and I was uh, a warrant officer initially, and then once again they offered me a direct commission to become a commissioned officer. So I accepted it and became a second lieutenant.
0: So when, so moving back to when you were in Vietnam, um, because that was your first experience, I guess, you know, out in war, I imagine it was probably pretty foundational to how you approached your other deployments.
1: Gave me a real insight to uh, being led and leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a air cavalry troop, Alpha Troop, 3rd to 17th Air Cav, and we had uh, Cobra gunships, as you saw in the museum. We had OH uh, 6 scout helicopters and UH 1 Huey lift ships, and we had an infantry platoon. And the mission of, of the troop was to go out and fad, find bad guys and kill them. And if we needed to put boots on the ground, we would insert our platoon on the ground and we'd provide them gunship cover. And uh, I'm trying to remember the exact date, but we were down in in the South and we got in a fight with a uh, North Vietnamese Regiment, which is a large troop concentration, and there were six Silver Stars given out that day, which is the nation's third highest award, and, and I, I was one of the recipients, and the five of my other uh, pilots were recipients also that day, because there was a lot of hero- heroism going on, a lot of aircraft getting shot down, and people rescuing other people, and blowing up sampans and shooting people, and yeah, it was...
0: That must have been. I mean, to try to remember how how long was the engagement?
1: It was probably eighteen hours. Once it got dark, things kind of settled down, and and uh, by then we had inserted a, uh, we got a, had a backup for the 9th Infantry Division, and they had inserted several battalions into the area, and, and we provided gun cover for those guys after that. But the initial stage was pretty pretty hectic.
0: I can imagine. I can imagine. Do you remember when, where you were, when you got the mission, or when you received? The-
1: it was like an everyday mission. And we're going to go down and scout this area out. And, and uh, we got down there, and then almost immediately got engaged and start calling for help and get the whole troop committed. Yeah, yeah. and then more. Yeah, artillery and. Yeah.
0: Wow. So when you say it was like a normal day, can you actually flesh that out a little bit? What does a normal day, or what did a normal day look like in Vietnam?
1: Well, we, we ran generally uh, 24-hour operations. We did night missions and day, day kind missions, and we always had uh, an aircraft on standby. For instance, uh, one time I was, I was a standby gunship guy, and, and they... About two o'clock in the morning, they come and wake me up and said, you gotta go call operations. They'll brief you on guard or on the ops channel. So I get in the, get in the aircraft, which is already pre-flighted and ready to go and start it up and get airborne. And they said, well, there's an Arvin company, you know, at this grid coordinates head south and, and uh, headed down there. And they said, well, they're in contact and they need support. And the advisor's asking for army gunship support. So a little while after that, I get another call from uh, operations saying there's another Auburn company in the same general location, and they're also receiving fire and the advisor's asking for support. And as I came up on the area, I could see these tracers going this way and going this way. And I looked at it and I thought about that for a little bit and I said, I told both the advisors, okay, everybody cease fire. And all the firing stopped. Because it was just two Arvin companies that were shooting up one another, and so I just turned around and went home. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah. Um,
0: that kind of decision making on your part—did you have to do a lot of that often? When almost you were every there? day. Every day.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, just uh, fly flying around, and the scout guy would be looking for. Uh, tracks or something trying because as soon as they heard you coming they would go go hide mm-hmm. and i would be flying cover for him in case he got shot at and there was a big uh and mostly in the delta kind of area but a big mm-hmm. palm tree nipple palm area near a river and he was on one end of the trees and or palm trees and i was on the other And i go around the corner to the other side and there's a, a disc 51 caliber uh, weapon which on a big tripod and about five guys they got a camel net over it, and they're trying to pull it off so they can engage me, but I engaged them well before they ever got it done. So
0: Was there a moment when you were out in Vietnam when your leadership was really put to the test? It's a challenging situation. Maybe it was officers you were working with.
1: Yeah. Well uh, one instance that comes to mind was we were supporting an infantry battalion. They were on the ground and they were pretty heavily engaged. Mm-hmm. And the battalion commander was in a C&C bird command and control aircraft overhead. Mm-hmm. And it became pretty obvious to me that he had lost perception of what the the situation was on the ground. So I was pretty aware as a gunship pilot about keeping track of what's going on in the battle. So. On another frequency, I was telling him where his guys were and what he needed to, do, what they needed to do, yeah. and and uh, helped him yeah. do what he was supposed to do because he just was not aware of the situation. He yeah. lost contact with what was going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would have been quite dangerous. Um, so stepping in, mm-hmm. quite a key key move. So then you said that you came back from Vietnam, mm-hmm. married Lindsay. Mm-hmm and you were serving the National Guard at that point.
1: I think I was the second uh, helicopter pilot uh, to join the Indiana National Guard. And in those days they had Korean War, vintage aircraft, really old stuff. But Mm. one of the things that really got me interested was the the Vietnam veterans just kept coming and we have a lot in common, you know. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. A lot of expertise and we had, it was enjoyable yeah. to be around my guys, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you go somewhere, you have all those experiences, daily experiences that's mm-hmm. so different from yeah. here in the U.S. You can imagine the camaraderie or, Yeah. Yeah. You know, being able to support each other also in coming back.
1: And, yeah, what well, was interesting is you think about at that point, then all these guys had all this experience, as did I, and, and we would talk. But they also were getting on with their lives, you know. Mm-hmm. Mostly a lot of warrant officers, and yeah. and they were going on to be dentists or pilots or. Yeah. And uh, it was it was interesting.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. So then, how did you how did you get pulled? Because at some point, you went to you were involved in Desert Storm. Mm. Where was that? And yeah. the so
1: as time went on I'd gotten a direct commission and I was uh, a captain mm-hmm. and uh, I figured I was ready to be a major mm-hmm. and somehow all my assignments I was an operator so I was involved in doing stuff that's a, in the, what we called it at that level the S3 kind of thing and I ended up in the, on the division staff as a as a uh, G1, which is personnel okay. pushing, mm-hmm. and I was I was very uh, unsatisfied with my assignment, and I was pretty vocal about it. And one day, the division commander called me into his office, and he had this big, I printout, and he said, "Well, you're, you'll sleep through it. and Your number, whatever I was, 250th on the promotion list, and when your time comes, you'll get promoted." And I said, well, thank you, sir. I said, but I don't want to be promoted for just coming to drill. And I went home that night and I got a call from a guy in the Army Reserve saying, hey, we're looking for an aviator in the 21st uh, Support Command. And he told me what their mission was and and it's a major's job. So I said, okay. So I transferred out of the Guard and went to the Army Reserve. And great, great assignment. Great guys, smart guys, uh, interesting. They lots of opportunities to go overseas and and, uh, participate with the real 21st Command, which is the support command for all the European theater. Mm -hmm. So sitting at home one Sunday morning, having coffee and the phone rings and we would do test uh, alerts. Mm -hmm. And I got the, I answered the phone. I said, this is a raging bull, meaning it's a real thing, alert. And you need to be at the armory as quickly as possible. So but then we got mobilized to go to Desert Storm right there on the spot, you know? Oh, wow. It took us, uh, I think we were there in, in a couple of weeks, probably, huh? Wow. Yeah.
0: That mobilization, what is, speaking to someone that doesn't have much experience, yeah. but what does that look like?
1: We immediately sent a, an advanced team to uh, Saudi Arabia, so we'd have a touch point on the ground. Mm-hmm. And we loaded up all our equipment, which we, we don't have a lot of equipment. And we got a, a stipend and a laundry list of stuff from uh, General Pagonis' staff, who was the Army uh, logistics guy for the entire Army in the theater. Computers, copy machines, telephones, all kinds of stuff to bring. So So I was one of the guys that got engaged to uh, purchase all that stuff and get it ready to go on the 141 and go off to war with us. So in a very short period of time, we committed uh, pretty close to $750,000 in in, uh, stuff that that we needed to take with us. Mm -hmm. And we all packed up on three 141 Starlifters, which is the predecessor to the C-17 today, Mm -hmm. with all that equipment and all our people and... Flew to Rota, Spain, mm-hmm. refueled, got back on the airplane and went to Saudi Arabia. Landed in the middle of the night.
0: What was your first impression? I mean, middle of the night, you couldn't really see, impressed yeah. much, but.
1: Well, it was, it was early in the war, before Christmas in 1990. And, and we, uh, General Pagonis was absconding with everything he could do to fulfill his mission. You know, buying buses, renting buses, trucks, whatever he needed, could, could get. We put uh, the whole uh, organization on ab- about five school buses and, and uh, went to uh, Bahrain where we were going to be stationed and got places to stay, sleep and rest our head kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, was it, I guess it was around Christmas, right, right before you said Christmas that you Yeah, ride? yeah. yeah. Um, and what, when you when you arrived versus when you arrived in Vietnam, maybe, could you feel the difference in setting the environment?
1: It it was Vietnam was a lot of it was well organized. And you went in and you didn't know where you were going. So you went to the reception station and they gave you a set of orders and told you to go find yourself on a cot. We'll call you when your transportation to wherever it was you were going comes. So so that's kind of how I got my assignment. Here, I stayed with the organization that I deployed with, and uh, we all had our separate jobs. Uh, I was actually the the senior aviation logistician for Army aircraft in the theater as a major. Normally, that's a full colonel's job, mm-hmm. and uh, so making sure that uh, we had all the fuel, bullets, parts, and maintenance that they needed. For instance, there were I had a, Operational control of 1,200 DynCorp guys that are a civilian contractor who were doing depot level maintenance in the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to re- refit all the aircraft with uh, filters. The sand it was so uh, damaging that uh, we put tape on the rotor blades to, to keep them from eroding, you know, being sandblasted, and all kinds of fixes like that on yeah. the spot. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, because I guess when you were in Vietnam, it, U.S. had already been there for a couple of years, two years, few years, um, but when you let go into de- for Desert Storm for that, you were the front lines. You were trying to get things we moving. We went right
1: to, right at uh, Dohaeron. I mean, the, the the there was only one corps there at the time we arrived, and they were, they hadn't deployed yet. They were still mm-hmm. camped out in the desert right near near where we were, and then. Uh, we got the word that they were, the 7th Corps was supposed to be disbanded and they were in the process of leaving Europe and coming back to the States. And they did a, a right-hand turn with the whole Corps and brought them to the desert too. So we had to figure out how we're, how we're going to house food and, and feed and place, you know, 300,000 guys and all their equipment. Yeah.
0: I don't, I don't even want to try to figure out that logistical nightmare.
1: So here's a, here's an example yeah. of logistics. If you think of it in terms of, you've got 700,000 guys in the theater, mm-hmm. and each of them has two eggs for breakfast. How much oil does it take to cook them?
0: <laughs> I don't know, do you do you no, know? I don't
1: know, but I know it's a truckload. It's a truckload. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, so you right before Christmas. And you stayed through the whole operation. Mm -hmm. What did that look like as it unfolded? There were some peak parts, I'm sure, in January. Yeah,
1: so uh, as all the units deployed to their forward staging areas and got ready to start the war, uh, we were doing all these things that I alluded to with taking care of problems. I mean, normally you would get uh, on a set of engines on a Black Hawk uh, or a Cobra engine you know, you get a thousand, twelve hundred hours on the engine before you take it out and overhaul and put it back in. And we were getting about a hundred hours on engine set of engines. So the DynCorp guys were rotating these engines in and out, and they were changing them in the field. And eventually, w- what happens is, is he, there's only a s- specific number of parts available, and and we weren't and. We would normally get them back and rebuild them and refurbish them and put them back in a supply system. We didn't have a, a method at that point to recover, we call them reparables, repairables, to recover those and get them back in the system. So I had to develop a system that uh, went, went to get them and police them up. Initially, I got the Air Force to supply C-130s and I was riding around going to each one of these aviation brigades and policing up all the repair, repairables and bringing them back. Yeah, and then the uh, National Guard brought uh, uh, Sherpas, which is a twin-engine high-wing turboprop, a little mini cargo plane. And I used those guys to uh, not only get reparables back, but to deliver parts. I had almost all the parts that the Army owned in in, uh, Abu Dhabi. And if you aircraft broke or needed a part, you would go put a submit a document request, and if it was the AOG aircraft on ground kind of part, they would put a, a, a fax request into St. Louis, where the general aviation was managed from, and they would put a fax in a fax machine, telling the guys in Abu Dhabi to put it on the Sherpa and to take where to take it. Mm-hmm. So we would get you know less than a 24-hour turnaround on parts delivery. So it was pretty effective. We had. 90-some percent availability rate across the board. One of the things that, yeah. that, that, that to give you an idea of what I did was that when they were briefing General Schwarzkopf on how they were gonna start the war and they were gonna use a, an attack battalion out of the 101st to go in and take the radar stations out so the Air Force could come in and and, and do their attack without getting shot down by the air defense guys. And, and, the, and Lieutenant Colonel Cody was the, attack battalion commander he reached Schwarzkopf so they were going to go into the desert and refuel and attack and then come back out and Schwarzkopf said there's no way that you're going to refuel in the desert because you remember when we did uh, during the carter areas when we had that desert one fiasco and the helicopter crashed into the 130 and it was a big mess out there and he said we're not doing i find another way to do it and so general Pogonis and, and my boss, Tom Jones, uh, they, I'm the aviation guy, so they look at me and I said, well, there's this thing called the Earth system, extended range fuel system. And I, I know that there's 200 of them in uh, Kaiserslautern, and we can just send some airplane, uh, some 141 up to get what we need and unmount a, a rack of four Hellfire missiles, put 300 gallons of fuel on that thing and then go in and out without refueling and if you need more missiles just take more airplanes so that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. Nice. Yeah.
0: It is quite amazing the you know the logistics and to be able to make sure that what happens in the field goes down how it needs to. Right. Because you can plan all you want and say well we're going to send in this these people and they this is what they're going to do So they have the fuel for it. Yeah. To come back. Yeah. And someone needs to be thinking about it. And if they don't, what's the solution? Yeah. So,
1: so I mean, you got a plan for rearming, refueling, yeah. recovery of downed vehicles, wounded, yeah, and and uh, POWs. I mean, t- after the first day of the ground war, we had eighty thousand POWs. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you got to f- feed, feed and, feed and house these guys, you know, and, and yeah. And, I mean they were just surrendering like crazy, as fast as they could, but they didn't want to die.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, to honor that, but you know, how do you fulfill that? Yeah, you know. That is that's kind of what um so how did you how did you end your time with that desert storm? Was it a slow end or was it a quick in, quick out?
1: Well, at the end Please. of the war. Yeah. The divisions all uh, came came back and prepared to redeploy back to their home stations. So the uh, by then, General Pagonis had been promoted to four-star and he had a two-star deputy. And, and uh, we had had a huge heliport that keep these aircraft on and not enough to, to cover two cores worth of, not 1,700 helicopters, but so we had a, I had a plan how we're going cause you gotta clean these aircraft and make sure there's no dirt on them and uh, get them ready to on a ship and send, ship them back to wherever it was they were going. And the deputy called me in one day and said, you gotta find another place to go cause I'm taking over the heliport. And his plan was to use that to uh, redeploy all the other equipment, tanks, APCs, trucks, everything had to be packed, packaged up and ready to redeploy back to home station. So I stood my ground as much as I could was a two-star general and I I, I got a slice of the heliport. And so then I reorganized my plan and and, uh, in order that they would bring their aircraft in and we would wash them and get them ready to to uh, redeploy and then fly the aircraft to the port, mm-hmm. take the rotor blades off of them, and the, the seal tip. seal we we put shrink wrap over the whole thing, and put them on the ship and send them back.
0: How long did that take? How many days? Or
1: uh, it was a better part of a month, I would say.
0: A month. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a lot of equipment to keep counting Yeah. Well. The store. <laughs>
1: set of rotor blades, a rotor blade for a Black Hawk helicopter cost about $100,000, one it has five rotor blades on it, I think. Mm -hmm. And when they came over, they put all those rotor blades in in shipping containers for rotor blades. But when they got to the desert, they turned those shipping containers upside down and used them for floor tents. So I had to figure out how to get the rotor blades home safely and, and we they didn't have any chains to chain the aircraft down on the ship, so I had to figure all that out. Uh, one of the other guys, Larry McIntyre, was who was the Everything Else guy, and he bought uh, pressure washers, mm-hmm. thousands of them. Oh. Yeah, and he set up a repairs facility and had parts because things would die because they were using them 24-7 and yeah. changed the oil in them regularly. And, yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh man. Um. Do you so? So then, so you're still when you get back, National Guard Mm -hmm. still, and your rank is.
1: So what happened is I came back from Desert Storm and uh, I got a call from the Adjutant General's Chief of Staff and he said, "Hey, we want you to come back to the Guard." And I said, "Doing what?" And he said, "Well." we have a uh, on the state staff we have a G1 position which is the reason I left in the first place I didn't want to be in the G shop and he said but and it's a lieutenant colonel's job I said okay I'll, I'll do it and he said you won't be there long so I transferred back to the national guard got promoted to lieutenant colonel um, three months later I got transferred to the aviation brigade and as the operations officer was there I don't know, 3 or 4 months and then they made me commander, so. Okay.
0: Yeah. As commander, what um what was your role as commander in seeing these operations? Please say again. What was your role as commander? Oh. Yeah.
1: Well, it was it was a uh, interesting time because at that point in time, we talked earlier about all the old aircraft that we had and we had in the meantime transitioned to Hueys and OH58s, but we mm-hmm. were positioning ourselves now to to get Blackhawks, which is the Army's premier lift aircraft. And so I <clears throat> started sending guys to school, uh, transitioning and pilots and getting the crew ma- maintenance guys spun up and looking at uh, maintenance facilities and getting them organized.
0: Very good, yeah. How long were you in that, that
1: position? I was the uh, Brigade commander, I think, for probably 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. And then I got promoted to brigadier general and became the assistant division commander.
0: Okay, yeah. And again, more strategy planning.
1: Yeah, more more higher level expertise, yeah.
0: Right, yeah. What were some of the responsibilities that came with it or one of the tasks that you accomplished?
1: Well, I wasn't there very long because I got, I got uh, activated to go take over the uh, U.S. command in Bosnia.
0: Yeah, so how were, you, how were you chosen or activated for that?
1: The plan was is, is normally every six months, they would rotate a unit in and out of Bosnia, and I was told that we were going to be the last uh, rotation and, and that the U.S. was leaving Bosnia. And my job was to continue the peace enforcement and do a do a handoff, and to to the Europe to Europe Euro, European Theater
0: yeah, yeah.
1: take over the mission. So, we mobilized a uh, an infantry battalion uh, out of the thirty eighth division, along with uh, an aviation section, yeah. and myself and a staff, mm-hmm. and we trained here in the mm-hmm. states for. Uh, 30 days. Mm -hmm. And then we went to uh, Grafenvir for 30 days and got some more training spun up. Mm -hmm. And then we deployed into Bosnia with all our equipment and people.
0: Wow. Yeah. Now, um, Bosnia-Herzegovina, that part of history is not well covered. And I'm sure that people who are listening to our interview would probably appreciate it a scope of what that is, at least from your okay. perspective. So
1: that, that all started during the Clinton era. And he said, we'd just be there a year. We were there, what, far longer than that. Mm-hmm. And the mission was peace enforcement. So peace enforcement is is that all the uh, protagonists that are involved, just tell them, to cease fire. Yeah and, yeah. and I'm gonna force you to cease fire and I got mm-hmm. the horsepower to do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we had the Serbs, Mm-hmm. The Croats and the Muslims all shooting at one another yeah. in various forms and fashions. Yeah, yeah. And so, so. Uh, the General Zucic, one of the Serbian commanders, came to my office one day and he said, So, if I started rolling my tanks, we were in Tuzla down this road, what, what would you do? I said, You see those eight Apache helicopters with the Hellfire missiles out there? You wouldn't make it to my compound. I can tell you that right now.
0: So the tension levels were still really high when you got there.
1: Not so much. I mean, they were, okay. everybody, it's probing, yeah, sticking yeah. to see how you feel. And, and yeah. probably after I was there three months, the realization that we were actually going to leave and that things needed to be normalized started to set in. And mm-hmm. and uh, people started saying, leaders, we don't want you to go. Stop. Mm. You know, we want you to stay here. But wow. It was time to go home.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess that's kind of how it is is once once peace is starting to set in the appreciation for the authority that brought it about.
1: Right. They I were very, very grateful. Serb, Croats or Muslims, didn't matter. They were
0: mm-hmm. they were
1: happy it was gonna be over and, and that they could finally get back to some sense of normalcy. But huge mm-hmm. scars, you know, uh, the Serbs in one swel- felt scoop killed six thousand Muslims. And they were throwing their bodies in the Saba River. And I mean, that's a lot of bodies. Yeah. And they were had mass graves. We were still finding mass graves uh, when I was there in rotation 15. Okay. And we had no knock policy. So unlike in this country, you, unless you got a warrant, you can't come into somebody's house. We could just go whenever we want. We would still find things because there, there's still some idiots out there and here's a, for instance, one one of my guys in a no-knock uh, search found a uh, a Barrett sniper rifle, a U.S. Army Barrett sniper rifle, which is about a $50,000 piece of equipment, yeah. and somehow made its way to Bosnia-Herzegovina. I got a nice picture of myself shooting that out at the uh, range before we put it back in the fuel in the supply system. Oh, wow. wow.
0: Um- How how did you prepare for handling the relationships that you found over there?
1: Yeah, well, there were Bosnia Herzegovina was divided up into three sections: the U.S. and when I was there, the Canadian and the Spanish had the south thing, and uh, General Beer, who was the Canadian commander, he and I met with my our boss, uh, General Packett and discussed about guidance and what we want to do and one of the things that we uh, implemented was uh, moving people out of the the uh containment area the fob into the villages so we could people would be comfortable and come and tell us where the sniper rifles were hit and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff and that that was a very successful program once we got it launched
0: yeah i guess getting weeding out the Unrest mm-hmm. that in neighborhoods yeah. and bringing the peace to a, a very immediate personal level for those citizens. Yeah. Wow. Was there any resistance to that plan? Either you
1: know, no, I don't think so. Like that you. was that was yeah. always a concern for my yeah. uh, General Bell was the the army commander in Europe, and he was my support chain. While well, I was a UN uh, commander, yeah. NATO. NATO. Uh, he frequently visited to make sure I, he was giving me everything that that I needed or wanted, and and when I told him I was going to do this uh, uh, program where I put the troops out into the into the villages, he he was not a happy camper. He didn't like that idea at all. So uh, when it was difficult to get the logistics for that organized, yeah. and so I was telling General Packet that. You know, I'm getting some resistance from General Bell. And he said, well, General Jones, who was a usurer commander, was coming to see me in a week. We'll talk to General Jones about it. And when I told General Jones, he thought it was the greatest thing since sliced butter. So General Bell's habit was, was every time a four star would come and see me, he would come down and get debriefed. And, and I told him that uh, General Bell thought it was a great idea. And he said, yeah, I do, too. And And he said, what do you need? And I said, well, I need you to get that thing out of your staff because I've got the the requirements up there and get it moving. And within a few days, it started moving again. So
0: we'll return to our conversation with M.G. Wright to hear about the end of his long career and his involvement in Heat Treat. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Heat Treat plays a vital role in manufacturing across the world. We created C3, the industry's only comprehensive pyrometry software that connects sensors, manufacturers, heat treaters, and labs. A software based system that's like having a NADCAP auditor with you every time you perform a pyrometry function. I was just wrapping up a NADCAP audit back in 2020 in October, and I was stewing about what we had gotten NCRs for. There has to be a better way. The expectation is that one or two individuals have enough knowledge to know the ever changing and updating specification of AMS 2750 requirements. In some ways, that's an unrealistic expectation. We just basically make it so easy for the customer. They push a button, the data comes in digitally, and all the human error is eliminated and tons of time is saved.
0: Overall though, what your plans, the plans I guess of the US and then of NATO, largely smooth overall at this point.
1: Yeah. yeah. I learned it by then. You know, if everybody wants to know, well, after a while, when are we going home? Yeah. And nobody could tell me when we were going home. So, (laughs) you know, sometimes you can fulfill your own destiny. So I I just started briefing when all these people would come to see me when I'd give them a little slide presentation, and we expected to depart on the 14th of December. one day at the Army Operations Center, they were briefing the, uh, the J3 on what was going on around the world when when the Bosnia thing came up. And they said, and they planned to depart on the 14th of December. So it became a fact, yeah. you know.
0: <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting to see that some some decisions aren't made, so.
1: You can influence You can
0: influence So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Some decisions just become as such mm-hmm. because folks like you, then, did you have a particular desire to to get back then as soon as possible, or what were your yeah thoughts on being there versus being with family?
1: I think from a from a soldier perspective, it yeah. was it was a good rotation. Yeah, uh, we had good communications. Lindsay and I would talk every not talk we we text back and forth. yeah. yeah. Every night, and uh, soldiers had the same capability and. Uh, you know, one of the problems that you run into in a situation like that is that if it if were, were to be a problem or an issue, you need to do something with it. Everybody has a cell phone. S- somehow, you got to shut all that stuff off, mm-hmm. clamp down on it until you, I can tell my boss what's going on and what's happening. And one of the things that happened early in the, in the rotation was General Packett told me that he thought there was a uh, Pifwick hiding in, in, a, in a town called Paoli. And so we surrounded the town, airlifted the troops in, surrounded the town. He gave me a, uh, a British special operations group to, to stay in a, in a uh, Serb- Serbian church. and. General Packett specifically told them no C4. Mm-hmm. So the first thing they did was they went up there and blew the doors off this church. And these weren't just little doors. They were, you know, four foot wide, 14 foot tall and three inches thick. And unfortunately, the with all the hubbub going on and the uh, the priest and his son were coming down the steps of this church when they blew those two doors off and just about killed both of them when they got hit by the debris and the doors. And yeah. Fortunately, they had an emergency medical doctor with them. They reinflated all their lungs, and I got them on a the medevac and got them to the hospital. And they both survived. But that's the kind of situation where you don't want people on their cell phones calling the uh, the press, telling them what was going on. So yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to brew tension from within. Right. And, yeah. Um. How uh, this is such a very different at least to my mind, so different from your experience out in um, during the Desert Storm operation. Still a lot of strategy, mm-hmm. sure, to do, but quite, quite different. I don't know if you could speak to that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, not only did we have US troops there, we had uh, Polish mm-hmm. uh, and, and various other NATO companies and battalions. They had a Turkish battalion, a Polish battalion, yeah. oh. uh, Lithuanian mm-hmm. platoon. Uh, so there was a lot of international uh, coordination between organizations. Some, some countries would allow me to tell them to do certain things, and mm. certain things they, they wouldn't let them do it. So yeah. you had to speak to that and keep all that stuff on, on track. But by and large, it was uh, dealing with, with the Poles and the Turks and everybody else was, was enjoyable and, and uh, kept them busy. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Do you still have contacts from when you were there?
1: Yeah. So General Beer, who retired from the Canadian Armed Forces, is a three-star. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been to our place. We have a home in Florida. Mm-hmm. He's been down there with his wife, and we've been to Canada to visit them. So, yeah. yeah.
0: That's great. Yeah. I mean, it's such a significant period of time, especially. Yeah. I mean, I guess it shouldn't say but I mean specifically for this instance you're dealing with you're working within NATO you're coming together for an end goal and you you actually do get to see some peace mm-hmm. by the end of it were you pretty satisfied with how oh, relations yeah. left off yeah. yeah
1: yeah I mean it we we rounded up a lot of stuff for instance one time in a joint operation with the Canadians we found a, a whole cave full of uh, brand new four deuce mortars you know what a mortar is it's a Tube like thing, you put a big board around in it and it shoots it, you know, eight or 10 miles out. Yeah. And, and probably, I mean, do, truckloads full of ammunition to go with it. So we, and it was up in a mountain, so we had a hot footed hand carry it all down to where we would get it on the trucks and then take it to the uh, uh, EOD place. We had EOD guys were just busy, uh, you know, seven days a week just blowing up stuff that we would find and, and just blow it up.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't get blown up somewhere else, essentially. No, it doesn't get used. Yeah, Yeah. it doesn't get used, no. That's great. So, and the handoff from the North American Treaty Organization, hands-off, the responsibility of peace to the EUs. Mm -hmm. um, Is not a stabilization force. No. I forget what the term is with Uh,
1: that. The general that was in charge of that for the EU was a uh, A Swedish officer, and uh, his staff, uh, they all spoke English, so that made it, made it enjoyable. That's Uh, good. He, you know, it just went smoothly. I mean, we had uh, shipping containers, you know, you see these things going around on trucks. We had about 180 of those sitting on the, on the airfield, and so, I had no idea when, and nobody in my staff knew what was in them. So when we got the word that it's time to wind this thing down, I took the bolt cutters and go out and start cutting the bolt, the locks off these shipping containers and see what was in there. And, and it was just many, many supply issues like a mask mounted OH-58 sight and radar system. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you it know, probably cost two or three million bucks and I was putting all this stuff back into the supply system, and the way it works is that the unit returns it to the supply system, gets credit for it, and it goes into your commander's account. Mm-hmm. So the the uh, Title 10 guys in Heidelberg, looking at my commander's account, is, how did you get $54 million in your, in your commander's account? And I said, well, don't touch it. I'm going to spend it just joking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Party to throw. Yeah, yeah. so, and it, as we emptied these containers out, we'd lift them up and put them put them on a truck and send them back to whoever owned them. And you know, I think we found probably six uh, M16s and later M4s, light rifles that were lost. Yeah. And, and you know, that's a big deal. Yeah. So you lose a weapon, you spend weeks looking for it. And they were just buried under these shipping containers.
0: That is interesting. It, it makes me um, wonder about your thoughts. This is a bit off topic. I'm not sure if we'll keep it in the interview, but what your thoughts are on when we were on the recent pulling out of, I think we were in Af- not Afghanistan. Afghanistan? We were,
1: yeah. Oh, it was a debacle.
0: Yeah, because just as you're describing it, uh, just from the strategy end, Yeah. the strategy now that happened down in Afghanistan okay. and what we left.
1: Yeah, it's like we were never there. Yeah. We left them $75 billion worth of equipment and left all the people that supported us to the Taliban's whims. I mean, it's...
0: Looking at that situation, especially coming from your background with strategy, how would maybe, how do you think that should have been handled? Yeah.
1: Yeah, if if I was General Milley, (laughs) and I wasn't, you know, first of all, giving up the, the Bagram Air Base was that was a crazy thing. Leave in the middle of the night, leave our allies there not to say a word to them was disgraceful. And that if we were going to withdraw, that was a f- perfect place to do it. And I firmly believe that had we we left a support contingent to support the uh, the administration and the, and the forces, they would have been successful because they had the equipment, they had the people uh, they needed the intel and they needed some supply support. So, but the way it worked out was, you know, all the injuries and in the, in the uh, supply people that were killed and maimed, and not only just U.S. forces, but other forces and and civilians. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I personally would call it a, a hasty retreat instead of a withdrawal. You know, I mean, it was right. Yeah. You know, bad.
0: Yeah. Well, I just wanted to, since you're in the position to assess that situation, just wanted to ask that briefly. <laughs> um, so during all this time in in the U.S. Army and the Reserves and the National Guard, any how did did you ever think, you know, when am I going to get back to my heat treat? What about metallurgy? Yeah.
1: So one of the unique things about the reserve component situation or, or is that everybody's dual-hatted, so to speak. They have their civilian life, and they have their military life. <laughs> yes. And I mean, the, the civilian skills sometimes don't have anything to do with what they do in the Army, but it's a, it's a, a, ne- a necessary skill. And here's the for instance, one of the things that we did when we deployed to the desert was fax machines had just come out, yeah. or fax computer cards mm-hmm. where you could fax stuff over. But there was no way to secure it. So you couldn't send that information back and forth over a fax line because there's no no uh, secure system. And, and uh, one of my, my uh, compatriots that worked there was a software guy and he worked for Allen Bradley. Mm-hmm. And we cut the cord off of a KY-58, which is a secure f- phone. Yeah. And we hooked it up to the computer and he made a, a jumper cable. So we could fax that stuff back and forth. Wow. Yeah. Pretty, I mean, pretty cool. Yeah. yeah smart guy.
0: Yeah, you yeah. able to understand the how behind technologies mm-hmm. and say, well, if that's the how and that's the how, yeah. I'm going to make this new. Yeah. I'll
1: make this work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah, he's,
1: he's another one of the guys, I and mean, he retired as a full colonel and a uh, good guy. I still, we still have, uh, I have the friends I call them our friends at King Five, the guys that I went to Desert Storm with, and once a month we get together for lunch, and I'm still hearing stories about stuff you didn't know anything that was going on about. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting.
0: That is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so when you were, so when you were back in the states, can you trace the your heat treat mm-hmm. involvement?
1: Yeah. So. Uh, my, I I told you, my dad worked for, ran a heat treat for a company in, in Fort Wayne. And then fast forward, he, uh, got the wherewithal. He started his own heat treat in Kendallville, Indiana, called Wirco. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And, uh, it was a, in the beginning, a struggling organization, you know, cash poor and, and, uh, Figuring out how to keep the lights on and keep it going and make money and pay the bills and okay. pay people. And uh, unfortunately, uh, my brother, uh, Dennis, worked worked for him, but my dad was killed in an aircraft accident uh, unexpectedly. At, I think he was 53, very young, uh, and my brother was left to run the business. and. So we were talking back and forth about, of course, my, my mom was uh, uh, seriously uh, incapacitated as a result of some surgeries that she had. So she was uh, tied to a wheelchair so we had managed her, her issues. And uh, my brother and I talked it over, and, and he suggested that we probably just needed to sell the heat treat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we found a buyer. and my brother had to agree to stay there and run the thing for five years mm-hmm. and so after all the smoke cleared and everything was said and done we still had a two-car garage with two welders in it mm-hmm. I'm, I'm welder people and, yeah, yeah. and equipment yeah. yeah and so I said "Damn!" I said well, what are we going to do with this we talked it over and I said well we used to make our own baskets. let maybe we can sell a few and so that was the beginning of Wirko as it exists today.
0: Uh and what year was yeah, what are was the name of your father? And when did he begin Wirko? Do you remember? Say again. What's the name of your father? Joseph. Joseph.
1: Joseph D. Wright. Don Wright, yeah. Joseph D.
0: Wright. And when did he, he go he start Wirko?
1: Jeez. Um that would have been sixty before I went to Vietnam. Wow. I, no, no, after that. Oh, okay. So that would have been... Seven or eight? 71, maybe.
0: 71, yeah. And then when you talked with um, D.L. or Dennis mm-hmm. about doing the fabrications of
1: baskets, mm-hmm.
0: that that was what what year?
1: So what happened to me was that I had a medical issue and I was grounded from the National Guard and so when all this happened that was about that same time frame so I was running the uh, running workco the fabrication business and toward the end of my 12 months which they were going to permanently retire me at that point point. and he came to me, and he was very unhappy with running the heat treat because of who he worked for, I guess. And was there room for him in, the, in this fabrication little venture that we had going? And I said, I don't think there's room for both of us, but if you want to run this, I'll go back to, to the Army and, okay. and do that. Yeah. So uh, that's what we decided to do. And okay. over the years... Uh, we strategized that we wanted to be this, the all-sourced bat, uh, uh, the Walmart of, of uh, suppliers for the heat treating industry. Yeah. And it, it's been quite a journey, you know, it's, since my dad started work or work was, it first existed, it's been over 50 years. So and impressive. We made a, a lot of decisions along the way that, that uh, you know, my brother is pretty has a great engineering mind in his head. He first, Roloc used to be the the standard for baskets, and we were making our baskets out of half-inch 330 and pressure welding the whole thing. And they were making their baskets out of three-eighths or quarter-inch rod and stick welding every little stick in place. And of course, every weld point's a potential point of failure. Mm-hmm. And at that time, furnaces went from uh 18 24 12 inches high to 30 48 30 high baskets you know big and the requirement for big baskets to be able to handle that kind of material fell right into our 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 timeline so it worked out well
0: that's interesting
1: we were at a heat treating show I still have a picture of that somewhere and you, you know how you go there and they have all the booze and the glamour and the mm. glitz. <laughs> and, and our first heat training show was uh, DL and I with a uh, a 6 foot long fold up plastic table. Yeah. And the the sign on the back was when you get there to tell you where your booth is it said Worko Inc. Yeah. <laughs> that was us.
0: So you you ended up letting DL take the lead on Right. Worko Fabrications. Yeah. And um, and you went back to the army. So, to, and then to what extent have you been with Wirko, or was that kind of the end of your yeah, history? Yeah, so what
1: happened was, is then yeah. uh, some years later, yeah. uh, I wasn't, wasn't, actually not very long after that, I, I needed a full-time job. So I went to my brother, who was then, uh, had Wirko moving along, and so he gave me a territory. So I was a WIRCO representative for Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee.
0: That's yeah, it's probably really beneficial if you knew how to talk the talk with heat treaters and what they needed, and you understood mm-hmm. their language yeah. from that experience. You know,
1: we'd get out there and see opportunities. And yeah. the fur, here's a, for instance, uh, uh, furnace fans. You know, we, we got into the furnace fan business. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, how can you support the furnace? Yeah. Yeah. Basket Um, also? Fans?
1: They've done some pretty innovative things over the years. Uh, And once we got into the furnace fan business, uh, we, myself included, worked on a, so that the furnace fans of old all had water-cooled bungs on it so it would set into the top or side of the furnace and you'd circulate water through the thing. to the fan would heat up, but keep the bearings cool and keep it from seizing up. Mm, Yes, yes. I worked with the bearing people here in Indianapolis and we got a set of bearings designed and and with little fan cooling fans that would sit on on the shaft and blow air up through the bearings and and did away with the water on the fan. That was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it uh, probably prevents some distortion by using air instead of water.
1: Well, it kept the fan from from deteriorating because generally the problem wasn't that the fan failed. Yeah. the corrosion and the bung would lime up and then it would heat up and then the bearings would seize up and then yeah. it would fail, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty interesting. And there's the strategy mind at work yeah. as yeah. well from yeah. the Army <laughs> bringing it back in. Um, let me see. How, could you outline also just the different generational ties in Heat Street, where they stand now. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So, uh, I retired fully from everything that I had going on in our lives in uh, 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, My last assignment, I was the J-3, which is the operations officer for the, uh, for the entire National Guard in Washington, Mm D.C. Um, so when I retired from that, Lindsay and I uh, had a home in Florida, mm-hmm. and we had a house here in Indianapolis, and we decided to sell the house in Indianapolis and move full-time to Florida. Uh, my brother was still running Wirco, and, and uh, at about that time, I started encouraging him to think about a succession plan. And, One of the things that's interesting is Chad, who now runs our business for us very successfully, on my head, started working there in in grade school, taking the trash out and doing that kind of stuff. And he, over high school and through college, when he he was home, had different jobs. So he was intimately familiar with all the things that went on. And he's not a very good welder, but he knows how to weld. We don't let him touch any of the customer <laughs> products, you know.
0: Oh yeah, you can work on that, Chad.
1: <laughs> so, but uh, he is—he—he uh, he worked in the in the office for a number of years, and uh, Phil Schlenk, my cousin, who was also part of the family and worked for Werco, uh, as uh, I would call him the money guy or the f- finance guy, and uh, he taught Chad all he knew or mm-hmm. brought him up to speed, taught him the, how to read his balance sheet and all those things that are important in keeping oh, yeah. the business afloat, making sure you're gonna make payroll. And yeah, and yeah. Uh, so D.L. retired and uh, I, I'm still on the board as a D.L. and we have board meetings and we have strategy meetings. And nice. but Chad's done a, a remarkable job of, of, of growing the company oh yeah, uh, through acquisitions. And in the meantime, one of the things, the big things that happened, the first one thing we did, we bought Alloy Engineering and Casting Company in Champaign, mm-hmm. Illinois, yeah. which is a foundry. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we still own it, Good. and we make castings there. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, we uh, we bought Sal Alloy, who was a direct basket competitor, mm-hmm. and we bought Hyper Alloys. Uh, and there a lot of a lot of technology, especially when we acquired Hyper, things that, that they did that we we didn't know how to do, but now we do. So, nice.
0: Yeah, Chad seems like a really good leader.
1: Oh, you know. The the one thing that I mean, Chad and I had several conversations about leadership in mm-hmm. the in the beginning, and and. Uh, He had the right basis to start with. I took him to school on on leadership, and he's just embraced that, and he takes care of his people. I mean, uh, one of our employees uh, developed cancer, and it was a a long-term cancer bout for her. It took her over a year to pass. I mean, there was no cure in what she had, and Jack bless his heart, he just continued to pay her
0: because
1: she needed the money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: really caring for the person beyond the input, output. Yeah. It's not transactional, it's more.
1: I mean, Chad, when he goes to the plant, every day he walks around the facility. Worko has three buildings now and they're not joined together. They're separate places on the land that they own. He goes to every place every day and walks around and talks to the people. Finds out what's working and what isn't. And what are your problems? What do we need to do?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: He's a good leader. It's not right. only people-wise, but for the business. He's yeah. got a good business head on his shoulders. Good for him. Yeah, we're proud of him. Yeah. I'm proud of the whole team, actually. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Fisher uh, runs all the facilities. He's the plant guy. Okay. And in, uh, in Avila, Derek. Can't remember Derek's last name, but... Young guy, yeah, uh, Purdue grad, smart, yeah, 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 people person has the same mentality as Chad. Takes care of his people, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. And our customers, we sometimes don't always get reimbursed for some of the things we do. We've had customers call us up and, you know, Friday afternoon, and their furnace is down, and and. What am I going? To, I don't have a spare. I'm, I'm going to get fired kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, We'll yeah. he, Bring us the fan. We'll bring some guys in and build you a new one on Saturday, and you put it in on Sunday, be back to work on Monday kind of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Looking for solutions. Yeah. The problems don't, you yeah. know. Yeah. They're just challenges. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, then your, your two sons, they also began a business, Ancillary to heat.
1: Yeah, Street. yeah. Very interesting. So uh Nathan, my, our middle son, yeah. uh I got him a job working for Conrad Cassie, the yeah. instrument guy, you know, and yeah. goes around and calibrates instruments and, and uh, he went to school on instruments but in the, the course of the business and, yeah. and uh, so he and I were talking one time and, and, and uh he was calibrating these, these uh instruments and I I said well maybe we should start or you should start your own business <laughs> and we talked it over uh so we one of the big customers that that we first took on was Chrysler Corporation in Kokomo Indiana so that was a, the foundation for yeah. starting TruCal yeah. and just expanded from there and he's still doing very well
0: wow yeah, you must be really proud of them they seem to yeah a lot of you you know your family the right family mm-hmm. a lot of leaders a lot of creative thinkers yeah. strategy and
1: so <clears throat> our youngest son Matthew yeah uh, one of the things that Lindsay and I uh, instilled and in, uh, or tried to instill with Matt or Nathan didn't take too well on him but both Matt and Aaron, are fluent Spanish speakers yeah and so right. uh, when I retired Matt took over my territory as a salesman yeah uh, uh, and after he was there a while he he told Chad that he, who's, who's our representative in Mexico he said well we don't have one and Matt says well I want the territory so okay. So he gets mm-hmm. on an airplane, flies himself down to Mexico. Of course, he speaks the language, yeah. And but he didn't know a lot of the technical terms for radiant tube, or, sure. but he, he's a fast learner. He picked all that stuff up. And so that's how we, and while he was down there selling Wirko alloy, you go into these heat treats and he'd know that unlike in the United States where we have these inspection stickers plastered all over everything, uh, nobody did inspections down there. And so he called his brother, Nathan, up and said, hey, here's an opportunity. So, I mean, for months, those two, they would line up these jobs and they would pack up all their stuff and get on an airplane and and go to Mexico and spend, uh, you know, seven days down there working 18 hours a day. And after several months of that, (laughs) they both said, we can't keep doing this. This is not going to work. And... uh, he, he had met Victor
0: Zacharias.
1: Yeah. 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 That runs uh, GTS now. Yeah. Yeah. And he worked for Dana. And mm-hmm. he asked Victor if he, he, he had any interest in coming to work for Nate and he. And, and he said no, he liked his job and he liked his security. And, and uh, so on a subsequent trip, a month or two later, Victor was taking Matthew back to the airport and he said to Matt, Is that job offer still open? <laughs> Matt said he was at that point, he was about ready to hang it up. And, and he said he just looked at the sky and says, Thank you, God. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 So Victor runs the business down there now and it's very, very successful for those guys and good for, for the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Getting the resources where they need to be. Yeah. Great partnership, it yeah. seems like. That's great. Is there anything as you look at the heat industry or what your your family is doing at WIRCO, with um, Truecat, with C three Data, that really excites you about the future?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think from Nathan and Matt's perspective, this the software that they're developing for for tracking calibrations and furnace acceptability according to the national standards. I mean yeah. that they're they're light years of ahead with the industry and it, if you think about how technology's changed and allowed them to do what they're able to do. Yeah. I mean before you would send a uh, technician in there and he'd calibrate all the instruments and he'd take all these notes and he'd have to go back to his hotel room and write up a report and hopefully didn't get numbers transposed and oh, yeah. make everything just as, as it's supposed to be and now as he goes through with his phone yeah. You know, in the software, he just plugs in the numbers and sends the uh, the report to the cloud and the, the customer gets it right there. He just yeah. download it off the cloud and print it up, you know. Wow. wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and nice uh, Chad's always looking for ways to improve productivity and, and make us more efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think the between the, those three young men yeah they' they're an asset to the whole industry
0: oh yeah. yeah oh yeah I think that we've recognized all three of them in our young um, rising young leaders of mm-hmm. heat treat that's yeah. one point or another well deserved if, if it were possible to nominate people twice they'd be nominated five yeah. times probably
1: yeah. it's um the uh, the program that the MTI has for training leaders
0: yes. 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 Yeah,
1: the Yes program. (laughs) That that is such an outstanding program. I mean, it it allows, you know, companies, heat treats or fabricators or whatever, to send their people up and to get trained in in, in leadership and making management decisions. And one of the interesting things uh, I find very interesting about the whole thing is they're a bunch of retired military guys and they use the the military decision-making process (laughs) to solve problems, you know? And I thought, yeah, I recognize that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. they're good guys. I'm
0: not sure how long that decision process is, but um, if if that's something you'd like to share, if there's something else, maybe as a final question, one piece of leadership advice that you would have given to Chad or Nathan or Matt um, in any of this, these last years from the military or a synthesis? Uh,
1: I think they already know this, but just to reemphasize it, and they do a good job, is your people are who you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, your people and your families, and you start thinking about the the effects of a person. I mean, mm-hmm. you, through his efforts, through the, the labor, you know, he makes the car payment, he makes the house payment, and eventually, you know, you look at that, Chad's got I don't know what it is today. Over 150 employees, yeah. and that's a lot of house payments and car payments and uh, college tuition bills. And, yeah. 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 So, great to, a good good job and a good work ethic and train people. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chad, you know, welders are one of the key things, key employees that we have. Yeah. And uh, he started a program uh called uh, I forget what he called it, but he got a t-shirt and trying to recruit young high school guys that didn't know anything about welding mm-hmm. and, and make them welders mm-hmm. and he he's been successful at that one time. I know he hired a guy right out of McDonald's and a year later he put him on the payroll full time.
0: Wow
1: to, to be a welder, yeah,
0: that's amazing yeah, yeah. changing lives really and
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So good. Well, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to make a note of or before we close out our interview?
1: Well, just speaking about technology and, and utilizing it, yeah. one of the things that uh, Chad not only goes to heat treating shows, but he goes sends people to other uh, shows, shows yeah. you know, machine shows, that kind of stuff. And we have a huge machining center.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so we go to these other shows and you get you, you get ideas uh, welding welding shows. Mm-hmm. So we make all our radiant tubes welds with a robot. What? A, yeah, wow. yeah. And we <laughs> TIG weld every joint.
0: Well, thank you, major. It's been really great to
1: talk yeah. with you.
0: Yeah. We hope you enjoyed listening to this special episode highlight of MGTJ Wright. Follow and like the Heat Treat Radio video podcast so you don't miss alerts when the next episode drops. To learn more about MG Wright, reach out to me at bethany at heatreattoday.com. If this conversation sparked an idea or something you want to hear discussed on Heat Treat Radio, let me know. Heat Treat Radio would like to thank C3 Data for sponsoring this episode. Let C3 Data save you both time and money while helping you to ensure compliance go to www.c3data.com. This and every other episode of Heat Treat Radio is the sole property of Heat Treat Today and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without advanced written permission from Heat Treat Today. And I'm Bethany Leone. Thank you for listening.